Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Popular science books often frustrate me for a variety of reasons. Sometimes there's not enough detail, sometimes there's too much detail. But usually, I can't help but wonder, does this person actually know what he's talking about? If he's an outsider, to what extent can I be certain he can really tell me what's going on? And if she's an insider, why is she spending so much time writing popular books instead of simply doing research? For me, though, Nick Lane is the exception who proves the rule. Nick is an evolutionary biochemist at University College London, pursuing a very exciting scientific career. And he's also an accomplished and prolific popular science writer who captivatingly writes about, among other things, his work and why he's doing it. More unusually still, he was a successful writer before he was a successful researcher, and perhaps that might have something to do with his uniqueness. Were you always interested in biological sciences? Were you always interested in biology or science in general? Uh, I was always interested in biology and chemistry. I, I'm rather upset that I was put off physics at school. When did that um, happen? At a very early age, about 13 or 14. Was it a teacher, um, a specific teacher? It was partly the teacher and it was partly the manner in which the subject was taught. We spent, uh, all I really remember is wave, <laughs> wave boxes forever. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and the kind of physics that I'm really interested in now, I, we never even touched on it at school. And so I, I didn't do physics A-level at all, uh, which I now really regret because uh, it would have been... Well, it, it's, it's one of my main interests, actually. Biology and chemistry, yes, they were, from the very beginning, subjects that I, I really loved and I found I was quite good at. I, I mean, it's strange because I was quite good at writing in English as well, um, but I never did nearly as well in the exams, and that was in part because I never knew what they were looking for as an answer. And science is very straightforward in that sense, the answer's plain, um, at least it is in the exams. And, uh, and, and English, um, I, I think writing books has, has helped me to find my way of addressing problems in science and realising that the the exam answers in science, which you're either right or wrong, actually is not really true at all. It took me a long time to, to really understand that, and, and that was as much through writing books later on in life. Was science uh, encouraged in your, in your family? Did, did your parents not so much push you, but was there a, a general sense of the importance of science when you were younger within your... your uh, well, my father's a historian, and my mum was a primary school teacher. Um, my mum had a deep interest in science, uh, but had never really studied it in a serious way. And my dad is, uh, is very intellectual uh, and probing in the way that he addresses questions. And actually, I've, I've often found that evolutionary biology is not a million miles away from history in terms of how it structures thinking about a question. So the actual approach to gathering data or, 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 or 
formulating a hypothesis is very different. But there's a lot of interpretation goes on in evolutionary biology, and, uh, and, and that's essentially historical. And I think I get a lot of that from my dad. Mm. He must have been quite pleased by watching your career and trajectory as you move forward. <laughs> I mean, my, my trajectory has been rather peculiar. Um, and it, it's worked out very well, in, so far anyway. Uh, but it's not a normal trajectory. Uh, I, I mean, I was outside science technically for some years writing books. Um, and I would love to be able to recommend that to people because it certainly expanded the way that I see science. And, and, and I think it's, in fact, very important to have a very broad view which you can focus down on particular areas, which is not the way that most people operate. Um, if you go through a standard degree and focus onto a PhD and so on, you become narrower and narrower. Um, so I, I followed a path which I, I don't really feel I had much to do with. I, I just did what seemed the best thing to do at the time. Um, and I've, I've been all around the houses. <laughs> so let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. So yeah. you, you did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. In biochemistry yeah. um, which I really did not enjoy. Hmm. I'd gone, uh, I, I, you know, at school I was massively keen on biochemistry and evolutionary biology um, and desperate to go to university and study it. And, and um, I found it a, a bit of disappointment um, and it was probably partly me, it was probably partly that I also left home and found a freedom uh, that was important to me. And I spent a lot of time climbing and, and, and hitchhiking around and telling stories to people. And that was good fun and in retrospect important. But it, I also found the, the course and perhaps the way that undergraduates are taught generally in universities very constrictive. It was a lot of memory work, a lot of right. rote, a lot of exams. Um, and I've now looking back and thinking how I teach undergraduates and how one should teach undergraduates, um, all of that memory rote learning has got nothing to do with how science works, how research works, whether or not you'll actually be a good scientist. And it put me off. And it wasn't until I started doing a PhD, and that was, again, a, a, you know, a series of lucky accidents, really. Um, I would have left science if I had anything else to do um, at that point. Mm. And when I started doing a PhD and realized that research was just wonderful, um, and then since then I've been <laughs> going in a more conventional direction. It's interesting because um, uh, my experience, and I'm not trying to draw any parallels, but uh, my experience was almost exactly the opposite of yours mm. insofar as biology in high school was seen to be, not just by myself, but fairly widely understood to be little more than rote memorization. Um, and it had this sense of being deathly boring. Um, and also to some extent, um, more work for a, a lazy high school student. <laughs> you had this idea that, well, okay, you have to memorize yes. all these things. In physics, you only had to know a couple of basic principles and you could derive everything. So. Uh, there was there was a, an ability to make a shortcut, but there was also this this notion of understanding things from a principle orientation, mm. which you seem to be very much. That's how I come at all these problems in right. biology is very much from first principles, and right. I suppose it is a bit of a physicist's approach to it. Right. And actually, a lot of my PhD students are physicists, uh, so there's obviously something going on there. I can see that. Um, so I, I want to get yeah. back to your, yeah. your your particular trajectory, but before I do, a specific question. Um, you mentioned 
There you go. Uh, you you mentioned the. Um, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, you mentioned the difficulty in teaching undergraduates, not so much yourself, but the undergraduate experience in biochemistry mm. and biochemistry and how it wasn't terribly inspiring, at least for you, um, or aspects of it weren't weren't terribly inspiring. Did you have, on the other hand, did you have particularly good high school biology or chemistry teachers who were influential? I have several very good teachers, yes, in chemistry and biology in particular, um, and other subjects beyond that, history and right. English and so on, maths. Uh, but um, but really, the two who stand out most in my memory are the biology teacher and the chemistry teacher, and it is. I regret very often that I, I haven't gone back often enough to say thank you because chemistry, well, the, the, the teachers in the school set out your life for you in a way that they probably never appreciate or, well, they, they may know that they're doing that, but I doubt that they ever know just how much they influence particular people's lives. So what, what, what was it about them that made them special? What sorts of things did they do? How did they engage with the students in a way that, that was helpful or captivated you? Uh, the chemistry teacher, you would hang on his every word, and it was partly uh, it was partly that he, he put things in an extremely interesting way, and it was partly that um, if if you were not really focusing, then he had an extraordinary shot with a with a with a board duster, so it would explode right in front of you and chalk in your face, and so you 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 really did focus on right, his lessons, right. otherwise you'd get an explosion of chalk in your face. So it was a, it was a mixture of I suppose the the, uh, the carrot and the stick in that sense, right. but it meant that you really focused in chemistry. Efficacious, anyway. So. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so after you you finished your your undergraduate degree, you you weren't thinking so much about a career in research, as you say. You you did uh, you were writing. You worked for a pharmaceutical well, no, I, company. I, didn't you? I, 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 did I did a PhD first. Oh, you did it first. Okay. Um, so so I, I, it was then that I really discovered how much I loved research. So what, um, what motivated you to do a PhD if you weren't terribly inspired as an undergraduate? You were well, just a stubborn I, fellow? or uh, No, I, I, I needed to pay off my student debt. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I got a job, which was in a lab. Um, and, and that job came with the possibility of doing a PhD if I wanted to, which I didn't intend to. Um, but when, it, when I realized how much fun research was, then I, I really did want to do it. So I, I, looking back, I'm enormously grateful for that opportunity. Um, and the guy who, 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 who gave me that opportunity is quite a maverick, a guy called Colin Green. Um, I, my, my PhD was funded by his winning on the horses for a short period. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if I should say that kind of thing. But uh, it would be very difficult to do that today. Um, right. It's become far more formalized. Um, and I, you know, talking to, to various academics at UCL and elsewhere, Almost everybody had a slightly unusual ride in one way or another, different to what we expect our own PhD students to do. And we're beginning to lose that uh, freedom to be a bit different, to, right. to do it a different way, to a be bit of rebelliousness. Yourself, a bit of rebelliousness, yes. It's a shame if that goes, because I think it's an important part of being a good scientist. And you're, in your writing, and you've written uh, many books, and you clearly have a passion and an interest for writing. And you mentioned earlier um, the benefits of, of writing and taking perhaps a more synoptic view of things. Um, was that something that uh, was just innate, or did you 
was it because of other other influential books that you've read as well, or or what? I when I was at school, I I uh, read books like Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene and uh, the Double Helix, Jim Watson. Um, I read avidly at that age popular science books um, and you know, dreamed, like most kids do, of Nobel prizes and 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 doing something really valuable and important. Um, and it, it, that's all kind of drained out of me at university. Um, and, then, and then doing the PhD uh, it, it wasn't part of it, really. That was, it, it was a very specific question, and it was related to um, organ transplantation, in fact. The bioenergetic aspects of it, so the, how, how the energy works in the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of, of cells. If you take an organ out, store it on ice for two or three days and then transplant it back into someone, um, there's two problems. One of them is, is you have a potential for rejection. And the other one is that as soon as the oxygen flows back in with the blood again, then the organ is likely to go wrong. It's called ischemia reperfusion injury, and that was what my PhD was about. Um, and so it was, it, it was very geared to solving a problem. Um, and a very specific problem to do with kidney transplants and one that would make a, you know, quite a difference in the world if you could do it because we can store these organs for two days at the most and, and that's good, that's a kidney for, for a liver or a, a lung, it's a matter of hours. Um, and so there was a, I was quite driven at that time to find a solution. Um, and the reason I ended up leaving science again was that I never did come up with anything like a solution. I, I, I had a great time doing the research, but mm. I didn't get anywhere close to where I wanted to be with it, and I, I needed to leave that field because it was plain that I didn't, you know, I, I'm stale. I didn't have a, an alternative view of it. I see. And then from there you went to the pharmaceutical. So, you, you were a well, writer for the pharmaceutical. How did, how did that work? What yes, so I, I, wanted to do, uh, I wanted to do a postdoc job, really. Um, but I had entered a writing competition while I was doing my PhD, and I happened to be a runner-up. Uh, and so I thought, oh, well, maybe I can write then. I had no idea how to go about writing, so I looked in the back of New Scientist for jobs, postdoc jobs, ideally something to do with bioenergetics and mitochondrial function, but nothing to do with transplantation, um, or, or a writing job. And I happened to get a writing job before I got a postdoc job. Um, and it was, it was for a small medical education agency. I had no idea such things existed. Um, and it was basically soft marketing for the pharmaceutical industry. But it was good fun. Um, and it was, in retrospect, very worthwhile. I learned to write that way, and I learned to communicate with, with very different audiences. So it would be, for example, um, a lot of it was doing animation of the mechanism of action of drugs and that would mean that you would have to set up by saying okay so this is Alzheimer's disease here you are you're orientated to the neurons in the brain um, what's going wrong uh, as, as they degenerate in Alzheimer's disease and how does this drug interact with that and, and so you'd have a 10-15 minute uh, 3D animation of this process I would write the narration I would conceive the, the, the camera angles and, and uh, you know, work with a, an artist and a producer and an animator to, uh, to make these things. Wow. So it was great fun. Um, and it would be you know, different jobs over different weeks. I would put in proposals for new work. Um, it was and probably it was, quite a learning experience it was too. A, I, I mean, there's the learning of 
how do you write properly and yes. reach the audience? But if you're doing different topics like Alzheimer's one day and something else, something else, you must have had to read up on, on quite a wide variety I of different things. I realized that you could become an expert in inverted commas um, in areas you knew very little about relatively quickly. Uh, now, that really in my own case was because so many of these diseases that I couldn't spell one day, the next day you read about them and it turns out free radical biochemistry was central to the disease process and so I was on home ground already. Uh, and, and, and this was really the motivation for writing books down the line is that all of these different diseases that I was writing about seemed to have the same basis in chemistry as to why they were going wrong. Um, so that was, that was thrilling actually. Um, the other things, I, you know, you had to learn to write for an international audience where English is a second language generally and that means cut out any flowery verbose English and try and write plainly and clearly. Um, and also in a, in, a, in a continuous direction moving forward because you can't set it out as you might in a scientific paper and say well it could be for this reason or that reason or you can't have a discussion that flows sideways right. if you like you've got to say this leads to this leads to this because the camera is tracking that right. and it, it forces you to tell a straight story and, and that was also an interesting learning experience so I learned a lot from it um, after a couple of years it was really enough because you had to hop whenever the client said hop. It was always subjects that you didn't choose yourself and you never had time to follow through in the kind of depth that you might want to. And so I became almost desperate to, to build on it somehow. And the, the ideal way out for me was to write a book that, uh, that, that, that tried to address the deeper intellectual question of why is this free radical biochemistry underpinning all of these diseases? What's going on? Right. So that, that's interesting because I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated that this bioenergetic aspect to your current framework. I had naively assumed that it had to do with your exposure to mitochondria as, as, a, as a PhD student and thinking about the impact of, of this wonderful ability to, uh, to convert energy in a very efficient way and then look at the world through those particular eyes. But in fact, it was reinforced. Took me a lot longer. <laughs> And it wasn't really until I started writing a book even. I mean, at that point in, in writing uh, with this medical communications agency, um, I, I, I had my first intimations, I suppose, that free radicals really were important, at least so far as I could tell. Um, and so the kind of chemistry and biology that I knew about uh, underpinned an awful lot and was worth trying to explore further. But I didn't really know why or how. Uh, and it wasn't until I started writing my first book uh, oxygen, that any of this really came to me. It was the process of writing the book that, uh, that, that gave me, uh, I'm not sure I can really say deep insights, but, but a, a far broader based understanding of the world than I ever had before. And what was this, describe a little bit of the sociology of the field. Um, so I say this as a complete outsider. Um, my sense is when people are looking at biology writ large, there of course has been this genomics revolution, people are looking at things in terms of information and, and, and genetics, and, and there's this old saw of the environment or heredity and environmental mm. factors and genetics, and, and here you come along, we're going to get to your book, your recent book mm -hmm. uh, momentarily, 
but at least from my perspective, here's somebody saying, well, that's important, of course, and essential, but it's not the whole story. And we have to look at things from a more bioenergetic perspective because that imposes essential constraints on, on these other factors and is deeply mm. tied to them. Um, this, uh, what we're talking about here, of course, came much later, but just in terms of your intellectual development, were other people thinking along those lines or more people thinking along those lines or was that just a completely radical uh, fringe type of orientation? Um, there are some people thinking along these lines, yes. Um, not many. And probably this, the person who's influenced me most, um, I hadn't met him at that, that, that point. It was not until some years later, in fact, after I'd written that first book on oxygen. Um, uh, this is a guy called Bill Martin, and um, now he is really a geneticist by background, but unlike most geneticists, he's extremely interested in, in biochemistry and physiology and, and, and really what genes do and the context of what they're doing it in, and he's surprisingly unusual in that. Um, and he has enormously sweeping and inspiring ideas about the evolution of life. And the first time I met him, I really, I thought he was completely mad. Um, <laughs> it was, was a good sign. <laughs> well, I, I, didn't, I didn't buy his ideas at all. Um, and, and now I do. Uh, it, 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 took, it took some time to come around to them because they were so radically different. I mean, you that, might be completely mad right now. You well, yes, perhaps <laughs> I am. Um, at that first meeting, I, so I, I met him outside the, the conference hall. He was about to give his talk uh, in, in a few minutes and he was having a cigarette outside. And he's a big kind of brash Texan guy. Uh, and, and he was having a cigarette and he was trembling a little bit and he was obviously very nervous, uh, which seems surprising given that he didn't look the nervous type. Um, and then he stood up and gave this extraordinary talk in which he argued that uh, the bacteria and the archaea emerged separately from hydrothermal vents and that the, those first cells didn't have cell membranes as we know them. The whole thing was, was um, almost impossible to take on board. It was just so utterly different to anything I'd ever heard before. By then, I you know I read widely about uh, right. about early evolutionary history. What was the reaction um, by, by others to the, to I, the talk? Stunned, stunned silence, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's 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 um, quite an abrasive character, and he has a, a knack of. Um, I'm not sure how much I should say here. He has a knack of making enemies, even of his friends, sometimes, which is a real shame because he's a wonderful man. Um, but. These ideas were right on the outside of uh, a normal place to be, but they're very solidly grounded in what we do know about biochemistry and physiology and genetics, and so I think he's right. Mm. Um, and now, obviously, I, I, it took me a while to, to see the world from closer to his point of view, and even now, I don't, you know, it's not as if we share all our thoughts on it, but he, he's probably the one person who um, has taken a similarly broad view of the whole sweep of evolution, essentially from a bioenergetic point of view. So I, I, I'm almost ready to give uh, my sense of what I think some of these issues are, which I, I had discussed with you, might be one way to proceed, and then you can tell me what, mm -hmm. what's all wrong about it. Um, but before I do, I left you, uh, as it were, having written Oxygen, uh, and then, then what happens to you in terms of your uh, Well, uh, so I was essentially, I had throughout this whole period an honorary position at UCL. Um, so I had a connection with the lab still. I published occasional papers, so that was tricky. I, it was a very useful address for me to have. I was well, writing feature articles for Nature and New Scientist and things like that. 
Um, and I realized after a while of doing that that um, I couldn't keep on writing about the same thing all the time that uh, I'd written another book, which was called Power, Sex, Suicide, Mitochondria and the Meaning of Life. And that was pretty successful uh, in a small kind of a way, I suppose. Um, but addressing these big questions, I, I had really developed a lot in how I was thinking over that period of five years, five, six years or so. Um, but I, there's a limit to how much you can write, say, for Nature or for New Scientist about the same theme. You can do it once every couple of years, perhaps, but they don't want to have an article from the same writer on the same subject every three or four months. So either I was going to become a journalist and, and write about other people's work and other people's interests, or I had to get back into research and really follow through with the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of questions that I was becoming more and more interested in. And I tried to engage uh, other researchers to to do some experiments, to, to begin to test some of these ideas. And I realized that there's no way that people have their own, you know, obviously and reasonably have their own interests and their own sure. drives. So you were um, on the outside looking in, so you had to get in, inside, as it were. Yes. And at that time, in the, this 2008 by now, um, UCL announced a very unusual prize. Uh, it was called the Provost Venture Research Prize. Uh, and it was essentially for any researcher within UCL who had, I mean, it was couched in very grand terms, so tr potentially transformative ideas that change the way we think about an important idea, um, you know, Nobel Prize winning quality ideas. Really, I think most people saw it as potentially mad ideas that are unlikely to get funded by the research councils. Um, and if you see it in those terms, then it, 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 it you know, rather than thinking that, uh, I don't have any ideas like that. You think, oh, well, my, my ideas are unlikely to be funded. I've got plenty of them. <laughs> I've got a whole book full of them. Uh, and so I, I thought, I have, I have absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain from this. So I, I put in a, a short proposal. It was literally one page, which is all that was asked for. Uh, and it bounced back at me from, from uh, the guy who was running it. It's called Don Braben. Uh, and he, for a long time, has thought that peer review is killing... Um, well, the peer review of proposals especially, but is, is killing really innovative breakthrough research because the people who review it, being your peers, have invested their whole careers in a particular way of seeing the world. So this is natural convergence. And so he's, he's talking about you know, major, major breakthroughs, people of the calibre of Einstein and Planck and so on, but he thinks there have been several hundred of these over the 20th century, people of that kind of calibre who just see the world in a different way and who now would be killed by the modern approach of uh, you've got to get the backing of your peers to get you know, X amount of funds and so on. And they simply would not have survived in that kind of environment. Now, I think he's probably right, actually. Um, there are mechanisms that do allow it. Um, but this was his attempt within UCL to try and back um, that kind of research. Uh, and so, so you wrote this one-page proposal, and then he yes. So then, it came back at me with a whole bunch of uh, criticisms and comments, uh, and he said, "Address these, and we can talk again." So it was a very iterative process, and I met him three or four occasions, uh, and each time he battered me back with a whole bunch of problems and questions, and um, and and it, this swelled to about twenty pages as a proposal. Um, by which time he finally said, okay, I think you've answered all my questions, I'm willing to back you, but nobody's going to read this proposal, get it back down to four pages, and someone <laughs> might read it. <laughs> uh, so then it went to, uh, it went to the, the, um, 
David Price, who is the uh, essentially the, the director of research across UCL, um, and I, I had an interview with him and then with the provost himself. And at no point was there a conventional peer review. At no point was I interviewed by biologists who had any kind of vested interest in this. It's not, in fact, a million miles away from how universities appoint staff, mm. which is to say you have people give seminars, people have an interview with a panel which is not made up of experts but people who are sharp and then between them they can more or less cover a whole range of uh, you know, different ways into someone's subject. How you can judge, I think, whether someone's any good or whether the ideas are coherent. So. I, I don't think these ideas are actually very far away from the mainstream, uh, and they shouldn't be. But the process strikes me as very unorthodox, and yes. kudos to UCL for doing that, because so many institutions, in my experience, are to some extent the victims of their own success. They become reputable, and, and the price to pay, or at least the price that's seen to be paid for this reputation and, and place in the pantheon, the academic pantheon, as it, as it were, is to ensure that all outsiders are safely kept outside. Um, and the idea that there is an explicit willingness to shake things up and countenance the possibility of involving people who are not necessarily already within the, the, the establishment mm. of the mainstream, um, that takes a good deal of courage and foresight and independent think thinking, and I good think for them. Did. That's yes, fantastic. Absolutely. Well, I, I hugely benefited from it, but, and you're right. They, they, this scheme is not running in any other university in the UK. Um, do they still do it, by the way? Do, yes, does UCL yes, still? yes. But they, they're very particular. <laughs> so, he's, I mean, the guy who's really running it, Don Braben, is always willing to meet people, um, and he tends to bat them away. And if they keep coming back, then he well, keeps batting them away and until he really thinks, okay, this guy's really got you know, an, an idea that's, that's really worth something. But so that's a not, sign as well. I mean, if somebody yes. is sufficiently tenacious and determined that they're going to uh, come back and, and also listen to what it is that he's saying, that, that's, mm. uh, that's a positive sign on, on their part, presumably. Yes, I would say so. I mean, but the ideas have to be open-ended. Um, it's not like testing a, a particular hypothesis that could have a yes or no answer at the end of it. It's really about a particular way of seeing the world uh, that could change the way that... And, and, and these ideas really are effectively, to put it in the simplest terms, is that energy matters too. Right. Um, and that can't possibly be wrong, can it? No, so, well, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I'm, I, I don't have any authority, but that seems intuitively obvious. Yes. Um, so let, let, me, let me move to, uh, that's a good segue to move to the vital question. Um, as promised or threatened or what have you, uh, I'm going to give a, a brief precy of what I took away mm -hmm. from, from the book uh, as a complete and total non-specialist. Um, and tell me, tell me what's, what's right or what's wrong about that and then I'll just pass it mm -hmm. over to you and then we can talk about some aspects of the details. So for me, um, there are either two vital questions or one vital question. So here's my interpretation. Um, in terms of two vital questions, we have this situation where uh, we have three different types of cells um, and that everything, every living being around us has, uh, is made up of one of these three different types of cells. And there's uh, so one question is of these, these cells, these, uh, 
I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but pro, pro, prokaryotes? Prokaryotes. Prokaryotes. Oh, right. So these two guys who are prokaryotes, there's the question of how are they related. Um, and then there's the question of uh, how did these complex cells, these eukaryotes, actually come into being. And in terms of timelines, you had these prokaryotes who were doing their thing for a couple of billion years. And then after roughly halfway through the age of the Earth, around two billion years or two and a half billion years, these eukaryotes all of a sudden came into being. And so the question is, um, uh, what happened in terms of a common ancestor between these two types of guys? Mm -hmm. And then there's the how did these eukaryotes come into being? Um, so that's one aspect of these two questions. Um, but then there's a whole other meta question, which has to do with this notion of um, the energy that's powering all these guys. And the fact that all of these different types of, of cells are powered by basically proton gradients and have the same sorts of mechanisms. So, so the protons across membranes, mm -hmm. and there's, mm -hmm. that's an integral part of the, of, of the energy aspect of it. So the question is, why is that? How stable is that? How has that, uh, how, why is that so incredibly universal? Um, associated, I guess, with one of the earlier questions is this how, why is it that these cells have themselves been so stable for so incredibly long themselves? Um, so that these bacteria are still around four billion years later mm. and, and so forth. Um, but this whole question about these, this energy of these proton gradients across membranes, it seems that's the whole, why is, why is that the way that life works throughout all of these different types of cells? How can we quantify it? How can we understand the effects that that has had from an evolutionary perspective, from an environmental perspective, and, and, and what mm. have you? Um, so that's, and then how can we move forwards rather than just ask those questions and actually start conducting experiments and start quantifying things and start uh, moving forwards to try to get a deeper picture of answers to the two questions I raised earlier through that framework of, uh, of this particular energy transfer mechanism across membranes. That's, that's what I picked That's up. a very good synopsis of the book, yes. That's not bad. Okay, good. So I'm, I'm not, I haven't completely struck it, because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> we have to stop right now. <laughs> um, so, so let's back up, and, and I, it's, it's a difficult thing, because I don't, I don't normally do this. In fact, I, I've never done this, but everybody should read this book. This is a fantastic book. Um, so it's a silly thing for, for even you, the author of this book, to be trying to recapitulate the book during this conversation. So, but at the same time, you can sketch out the, the main arguments in a, obviously a much more lucid and comprehensive way than, than, than I've tried to do in a detailed way. And then I'm gonna try to ask you all sorts of questions about it that I had along the way, if that's fair. Sure. So the, um, the vital question, uh, the, English, the English subtitle is why is life the way it is and that's really what I have in my mind as, as the vital question. Yeah. Um, it's not obvious though what that means, why is life the way it is. What it means is that all complex life that we see around us, so plants and animals and fungi, basically everything that you can see uh, is composed of a very particular cell type. They're large complex cells with all kinds of bits and pieces inside that they share. So if you look at one of our own cells down a microscope, you struggle to tell the difference between the cell of a mushroom or the plant outside the window. They're remarkably similar. They basically, you could list page after page of detailed traits that they have in common. And it's very, very different to the structure of bacteria or archaea, this third group of 
of prokaryotes, so they're small, simple cells that don't have a nucleus. They look like bacteria, but in fact, in their genes and in their chemistry, they're quite different. And they're, they're also named these suggestively the, wrongly as well, these things, because it, if you don't know anything, it, you, yes. you get the sense that they're the oldest thing around. But You would think so, and that's yeah. why they were named that yeah. way, but they're almost certainly not any older than the bacteria. Right. Uh, they're probably about the same age. Uh, so life on Earth has had a very peculiar trajectory. It's, it started very early, so far as we can tell, four billion years ago, and then we had this, as you mentioned, a two billion year um, delay before anything really interesting happened, interesting at the level of large morphological complexity. Then this one cell type arises uh, once, it seems to have happened once in four billion years, and, and then we have this enormous explosive radiation of the major different groups of eukaryotic cell types, and so that's the plants and the animals and the fungi, but also you know, all kinds of single cell things like amoeba, but, uh, but thousands of them, that's where the real uh, variation within the eukaryotic world is. But they're all basically the same cell structure. Um, and, they, uh, and the things that we have in common, well, they're things like sex, for example, and two sexes, and going around engulfing other cells, eating, eating things. These are all traits that all these cell types seem to share. And it's not obvious why none of them arose in bacteria or archaea. And it's not obvious either, would it be this way on, a, on another planet? Can we predict? And here I'm, I'm approaching the physicist's view again as well about trying to predict from first principles what exactly. we might expect to see as life on another planet. And some of it's straightforward. You can talk about, would it be carbon-based? Would it need oxygen? Uh, but some of it is quite strange. Would it be sexual? Um, we don't know. It was, you know, it's a hundred-year-old problem why life is sexual on Earth. Um, and the strange thing is that entire field for a hundred years compared sexual organisms with asexual organisms, so things that clone themselves. Um, and there, you know, dandelions clone themselves, various plants and animals clone themselves. Um, and you can grow much faster, you can do much better for a period of time, but then they all fall extinct. And it's never been entirely clear why they fall extinct. In effect, there's just a lot less variation in them, and they're far more likely to get wiped out by a virus or something. Right. Um, but from a first principles perspective, it's, it's an obvious question, at least maybe I'm just uh, easily swayed uh, by good writing, perhaps, but it seems like an obvious question that I certainly knew nothing about, but I imagine that I was confused that biologists hadn't remarked upon this as well. So the obvious question is this, if you have these uh, eukaryotic cells and they're all radically different in terms of all their internal structure, their nucleus, their mitochondria, mm. this, that, and the other thing, but the level of variation between them in terms of all the different species that have these eukaryotic uh, uh, cells is really very, very small. They all seem to basically be mm. the same. Mm. So the question is, well, why is that? What's, what's, what's going on? Well, that is exactly it. That's, that is, this is a vital question. Uh, now, what's going on? I mean, in a, in a very short answer, uh, what I think is going on is that bacteria simply are, are structurally constrained. They're very small, simple cells, and they breathe, in effect, across their membrane. Um, so they breathe through their skin. Um, and, and eukaryotes don't. We've internalized it in, in mitochondria, which were bacteria once. So, so some prokaryotic cell swallowed another prokaryotic cell. And the long-term effect of that was that it was breathing internally, that it had, it had internalized the whole respiration process. Right. Um, 
But it's not very obvious why that would make such a big difference or why bacteria can't just do it without swallowing a cell. And now the swallowing the cell, I think, is the, the critical factor because the cell, it's not a cell, it's a, it, is, it tells, there's a lovely quote from Jacques Monod, I think, who, uh, who's, who said that every cell dreams of becoming two cells. Um, and, and cells just become populations. And most people have seen populations of bacteria dividing away madly. Um, so you have a cell within a cell and it very quickly becomes a population of cells within the cell. And they compete with each other to get into the daughter cell, into the next cell, and so on. And so what you have is a, is a, a population of living things inside a population of cells. And that is probably the single defining moment of the whole history of life, which is it, it changes, in very simple terms, it changes the, the kind of things, that the selection pressures. So what you have to do to survive is not worrying about the outside world, it's worrying about the inside right. world. And, and, and it's for those reasons that all these eukaryotic cells have got all the same traits because they were all dealing with this same problem very early on in their evolution of how do I deal with this population of bacteria that are going to tear me apart if I'm not careful? How do I constrain it? How do I, how do I keep it doing useful things for me? Um, and this whole way of looking at the outside versus the inside course necessarily brings up the whole notion of a membrane and so you're starting to look at it from a membrane centric perspective I, mm, mm. I mean maybe you would anyway I don't know well I mean that, that goes right back again to the origin of life um, because the bacteria as I say they're respiring across their, their membrane their outer membrane right. we've simply internalized all of that along right. with the genes needed um, but you go back to the origin of life there's a lovely quote from the really the founding father of bioenergetics as a, as a field, a guy called Peter Mitchell, who won the Nobel Prize in 1978. Um, and he had a paper on the origin of life in 1956 from a conference in Moscow. Um, and he, I can't get the quote exactly right, but essentially he was saying that the, uh, he sees life as, as being the, 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 the dynamism of things crossing the membrane, of the, of the phases on opposite sides of the membrane, and you can't really tell the difference between what's the inside and what's the outside. They're simply two phases on opposite sides of a structure which is both separating them and, and, and uniting them. Yeah. Um, and when you begin to see the world in that kind of way, and you think about the structure of hydrothermal vents, and you think about the structure of energy flow in, in living cells, you realize that it's an extremely productive way of seeing the world. Okay, so I want to get to that in a, in a, in a moment in more detail, um, these hydrothermal vents and, mm. and, and so forth, and what we can conclude from that. But I, I want to talk a little bit about um, respiration and um, this notion of this proton motive force. And, and, and as I understand it, um, all of these cells, all of these three different types of cells, undergo some form of uh, of this respiration mm. and what it basically amounts to is um, from a chemical perspective or, or perhaps a physics perspective it amounts to some interaction with the stuff out there the food eating the food which basically amounts to moving electrons down this little chain in the membrane as, a, mm. as it were and they bounce along we basically have a current of electrons in the membrane stripped right. from food and passed to oxygen so we have a literally a current and, and, and in so doing, you're pushing protons outside of the and membrane. And that current is driving the extrusion of protons across. So then we have something like a, a hydroelectric dam almost, where the membrane is the dam, and on one side we've got 
a reservoir of protons, and on the other side we don't, and then there's a turbine in that dam, right. um, which is the, the ATP synthase, which is the energy generating protein, it makes ATP, which is often called the energy currency of life, but it's, it's, you could think of it really as just cash to spend on things. <laughs> <laughs> energy cash. Energy cash, yes. So, so here's my, my question. As somebody, I should warn you, uh, maybe I, it's because I had a bad uh, chemistry teacher, but I, I, uh, the chemistry stuff just completely confuses me. So uh, you know, I see all these little symbols in you. There's Fe and there's plus this and plus that. Right. And and then I'm I just afraid that's true for a lot of people and it's... Well, I just really, it's very straightforward. But those symbols, you know, it's same for me with with math. Sometimes I find a lot of uh, mathematical symbols off-putting. Well, I just don't. I, I mean, I, I have complete assurance that uh, people know what these things are in terms of the valence of whatever mm. it is in electrons. But I, I don't remember which one is which, and so it doesn't actually really mean anything to me. It's like a completely different language. But what I am thinking is, these electrons are moving along and forming a current. So at some level. Um, and you mentioned this at some point, and you, there's some, what this basically amounts to is some probabilistic quantum tunneling thing of these electrons mm -hmm. that are That's going exactly along. That, yes. And so I'm thinking that it, it should change, I don't know if I can formulate my question, but I'm thinking, okay, if that's true, if I've got this very, very basic picture of these guys going from here to there to there, then the strength of the current and the particular uh, interaction and how well the efficiency of, of driving the protons across mm. and all the rest of that should depend on some structural aspect of these uh, elements or molecules or whatever that it's bouncing along through. So there should be some situation where you can, you can do a mathematical model and you can say, if we space these things at this level, they wouldn't be as efficient. And if we use this, this other type of material, mm. it would be less efficient or more efficient or, or, or something like that. Is that is 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 there anything to that? Or because there seems no. to be some sort of universality to this there idea. Is, yes. And, I mean, that, and that that confuses me. Well, electrons do hop right. uh, by quantum tunneling from one center to the next center, and the likelihood of them doing that depends on the distance. Um, so it's got to be a small distance, it's right. in the order of well, 20, 12 angstroms or so, but uh, I won't attempt to explain what that means. Um, Which is very small. It's right? very small, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like Monty Python, doesn't it? It's a very, very small distance. <laughs> uh, so, they, so, so, so it depends on, on that distance. It depends as well on the pull from there, um, technically the reduction potential, but the, the, effectively the, the degree to which it wants that electron. Um, and it depends as well on whether it's got room for it, in effect, chemically, whether it's got room for it. And so these factors are all under selection. Um, you can see that the distances between the centres are, are really th the same between wildly different species. Um, and they're set in proteins, they're set in very large proteins, and the proteins have these, these three-dimensional structures, and within that three-dimensional structure it has this this quantum tunneling site here. Right. And then maybe another protein subunit over there somewhere twists around here and holds the next one there. And, it, and what's being selected is that distance of 12 angstroms. Right. Um, and then the, the thing which is pulling it through, making it hop from one to the next to the next, is, is the sucking power, if you like, of oxygen, which is down at, the, down at the other end. But it doesn't have to be oxygen. It can be almost anything. It can be iron or it can be nitrate. Uh, anything which wants to grab an electron will, will work. 
just that oxygen does it particularly well. And so, so we're going to talk hopefully a little bit about mm. principles and principles of biology and their applications. Um, you mentioned in an offhanded way the possibility of extraterrestrial life, and so you're already starting to think about the idea of, okay, well, this is your guiding principle. And throughout this book, you're talking about the guiding principle of the proton motive force and this mechanism. Mm. Um, and so in the back of my mind, and we'll, hopefully we'll get to it, but in the back of my mind, uh, there's the obvious question of, well, why this particular mechanism? Um, it, it seems particularly substantial to note, or it seems particularly important to note that all cells are, are doing this sort of thing to some extent. Mm. And so you're, that's suggestive of some kind of, um, some kind of, well, well, the question law. is, what does it suggest? Um, I don't think we know, and, and this is not the kind of question that many people worry themselves about. Uh, it could suggest one of two things. It could, it could suggest that it's just really good, um, and so it spreads, uh, and it's spread across the whole world because it's better than any other way of doing it. Um, or it could suggest that there's a fundamental reason underpinning it, that it had to be this way, and, uh, and other ways either don't work as well or simply um, never got a hold in the first place. So it's quite possible to think of alternative ways of structuring energy. Okay, because that's, that's what I wanted um, to get to. And, and so it really does look as if there's a peculiarity about this. It's, it, it's, it, it's one of the most counterintuitive ideas in, in biology. And there's a lovely quote from Leslie Orgel, who's a famous chemist working on the origin of life, who said, uh, you know, not since Darwin has, has biology come up with an idea as counterintuitive as those of the great physicists. Yeah. Um, and it's fundamentally different to DNA or something, where as soon as you see the structure, you understand how it works. Uh, and, and with this, it's just not chemistry. Um, everybody thought in terms of chemistry. You want to activate this molecule to make it react, so you transfer a phosphate group onto it, and that makes it a bit more reactive, and then it does its thing. Yeah. Nobody even dreamt that the intermediate would not be just another chemical molecule, but would be a membrane with an ionic gradient across it. Right. Uh, it's odd. And, and I think that's, the, in a way, the joy of the whole thing, because why is it like that? Um, and, and is it just an oddity, a quirk of a particular origin of life here? Is it something which happened a bit later and spread for some weird reason? Or what I'd like to think, and what I think is the case, is that it's fundamental. Uh, and, and that not only does it structure the way that life works here, so from the origin of life right the way through this long period of stasis of bacteria through to this abrupt and uh, almost unique origin of all complex cells, through to all of the complex properties of these cells, sex and sexes and the things that I mentioned. So it can, it has the, in, it has the intellectual power to explain all of that whole continuum. It almost certainly doesn't, nothing in science works like that, but it would be wonderful if it if it could restructure the way we think about these questions, and I think it, it might. So I want to get back to this later, um, but now I'm going to um, try to take, take you back to where I cut you off just a moment yes. ago when you were talking about hydrothermal vents. Um, so my understanding is that you, um, now we're talking about the origin of life, and by origin of life we're, we're looking at the origin of both these bacterial cells uh, and these uh, these archaea cells and how they came about because the other guys came a couple billion years, years later so we don't have to worry about yes. them for the time being. Put them aside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess I can I can ask you to set it up by talking about something that 
you're very well aware a lot of people have in their minds when they've heard of the origin of life is this notion of primordial soup from these experiments yeah. by this guy in the 50s with mm. lightning and a big big flask of stuff sure. <laughs> <laughs> and all the rest of that. Um, and, and then move to, if you could, um, why you think these alkaline hydrothermal vents are, uh, are important, and then I have mm. more, more questions about those. So there's been, a, there's been an intellectual tradition in, in the origin of life as a field, going back to that Miller-Urey experiment in, in the 1950s, um, really of synthetic chemistry, what works, um, and, and you know, even in the 1950s, the idea that the, the Earth was like Jupiter and that it had gases like methane and ammonia and hydrogen, uh, it wasn't exactly a discredited idea, but most serious geologists at the time thought that the, the early Earth was full of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and so those gases were never really, never really geologically likely. Uh, but the chemists don't worry about that kind of thing. They, they're interested in chemistry that works. And you, tr you start with CO2 and it doesn't work. Try and get it to react with hydrogen and nothing happens. Um, and there's a serious question there, because if you could make them react, you can strip CO2 out of the atmosphere, uh, you know, reverse global warming, and, and convert it into, into synthetic gasoline and, and solve the energy problem as well. So these are, these are ideas that, that if we could make it work, um, would, would have a massive impact on, on, on the world. Um, but it doesn't work very easily. And so the, the chemists have, and it's very difficult to, to publish stuff that doesn't work either. And the chemists have done wonderful chemistry, um, starting with things, well, so methane and ammonia originally, uh, they accept that the, the earth probably didn't start that way, so they think about cyanide, or formamide, um, relatively reactive molecules. Um, and they've been able to synthesize things like nucleotides, the building blocks of DNA from them. And, and, and so you have an impetus then in a field like that because it, it, it works and everything looks as if it's falling into shape and this chemistry will produce the building blocks of life and sometimes only those and at quite high yields. So it's, it's hard to gainsay it because it's good experimental science, but it's nothing like life. Um, and I, I think they've been guilty of ignoring biology. They, they, they take biology into consideration insofar as they say, okay, well, it's, it's DNA, it's RNA, it's proteins. We need to synthesize DNA and RNA and proteins from very simple molecules. We don't know what the early Earth was like. We don't know how, what, how long a distance there was between that chemistry and the first cells. So it's intellectually perfectly acceptable, all of which is true. But what they've come up with is a series of pathways that just doesn't look anything like a cell as I recognize a cell. And so they haven't really closed the distance between prebiotic chemistry and a cell, as we know a cell. Um, now, the reason I became very interested in it is, is because of these alkaline hydrothermal vents where you have natural proton gradients across inorganic barriers. So it's very analogous to cells. And so it throws up this possibility that, um, well, cells have a structure. And this is another thing that the chemists have not worried about very much. They tend to do reactions in a test tube in solution. There isn't a structure there. Um, but cells have a structure. Everything's going on across this membrane. So if you ignore that membrane, then maybe you've ignored the most important thing. Um, but then the question is, well, okay, <laughs> we're trying to do prebiotic chemistry here. We, can't, we don't have a membrane. Right. Um, so what do we have? Well, instead we have an inorganic barrier and we have fluids on opposite sides which are very different in their chemistry and which will react if they get in touch with each other. 
So we have a large-scale um, analogy, something that looks very much like... We uh, have, uh, and we have a continuous flow as well going through it. So the difference between living and, and not being alive is really energy flow. Um, you know, someone who dies, there's really no difference between when they were alive and when they were dead, except that they're, you know, they no longer have any energy flow, but they've not lost any genetic information in that moment. And this is really at the origin of life. Um, all cells have this continuous energy flow uh, and, and they waste a tremendous amount. The excretion is, is massively overlooked. Mm. Um, so we have, a, we have a, a continuous chemical reaction which is powering everything and, and we put out, you know, just, you know, breathing oxygen, eating food, doing it continuously, putting out waste all the time and all cells do that. And this is what vents do as well. They're continually feeding in hydrogen in these alkaline fluids and venting out the waste. So there's, there's various ways in which it's analogous to a cell, but it's purely inorganic. And so the question is then, well, you know, how, how might these forces of chemistry and physics be harnessed to driving the growth of protocells, the first, the first cell right. type things? Um, and so just the possibility that there may be some way in which it can, in which these proton gradients across inorganic barriers could have led to this mechanism being taken over by cells and, and becoming fundamental to cells and used by all cells on this planet. So there are there are um, explanations for why it might work. I won't go into them in detail now, sure. but the, the 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 key point is that these are testable, and they're very simple questions that can be addressed in the lab. They're not, you know, we, we've built a reactor to try and test some of them. It's very simple. It doesn't cost much. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's pretty amateurish, I have to say. Um, but nobody else has ever tried to ask those particular questions about the structure and about whether, whether hydrogen can convert CO2 into organic molecules if driven by a proton gradient across a barrier. That's, that's the, the essence of it. So uh, a couple of things. Uh, as I understand it, um, there was somebody uh, in the field, this guy from JPL, whose name I, I can't remember. Mike Russell. Okay. Yeah. Who, who had suggested something yes. uh, like this uh, and was also one of these, seems to be the colleagues with whom you get along, seem to be all these cranky, rebellious people on the outside. It does seem that way, doesn't it? <laughs> but also somebody who wasn't perhaps uh, part of the mainstream who had suggested this. And then, as I understand it, in... Uh, in roughly the year 2000, this Lost City yes, guy exactly. was, was actually so found. So Mike Russell had laid out a lot of the theory underpinning the idea that these alkaline hydrothermal vents could be a, effectively an electrochemical reactor uh, for the origin of life. And he first started putting that forward in 1989 uh, and had a series of papers through the early 90s um, where he, 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 he kind of drilled down into exactly how it might work. Um, and then, in, in, and all of this was very much on the periphery of the field, I think. Um, and it wasn't until the discovery of Lost City in the year 2000 that suddenly it became mainstream, and, and he took on almost kind of profit-like <laughs> proportions. And that he, he, he'd laid out you know, in prediction exactly what these events would be like. So, so a, a couple questions then. Um, where is this thing exactly? Which, which, Lost uh, City? Yes. So it's off the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. So the key point is it's not on right. the Mid-Atlantic Ridge because these are not volcanic reactions that are driving it. It's a reaction between 
rock, cold rock in effect, and water, the ocean water percolating down into the crust. Uh, and so it would happen on any wet rocky planet. And that means billions of exoplanets across the Milky Way. But it also means presumably that it, we should have lots more of them here. There, there should be, I mean, how do you, how do you actually go well, about finding are, these things? More, and, well, and, this was discovered by accident. Yeah. Um, so we know that the, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is an extremely interesting place. Uh, lots of expeditions go there. And um, you know, it's, it's not easy to get there. You, you're, you're several kilometers down. Um, and so Lost City was discovered by, by an expedition uh, that was going to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, but 20 kilometers away, nobody was paying much attention apart from a PhD student, uh, who was, it was her first trip down, I think, and she, she's out of, the, out of the window of the submersible and said, hey, wow, what's that? <laughs> so, I mean, partly the reason it was discovered late is that nobody had bothered to look. We, right. we go to the interesting places, and you don't really get those kind of vents on the, on, on the ocean spreading centers, where you've got the magma directly welling up very, very close to the surface. You tend to get them further away. But you tend to get them in that region because it, precisely because of the spreading centers. So the, 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 the ocean crust is spreading across, and this is fresh crust which has been exposed to the ocean water. And so, uh, and it's coming from, from regions of the mantle which are quite close to the crust. Right. And so it's, it's the type of rock that will react with water. Um, it's rich in magnesium and iron and things like that, and it's basically just reactive. Now, if you, if you, if you didn't have any tectonic spreading, uh, then the entire ocean crust would, the technical term is serpentinized, but basically react with water and turn into a different mineral. It's, it's metamorphosed into a different mineral called serpentinite. Um, and that would happen down to a depth of five to 10 kilometers down and everything would stop, that would be it. So the fact that we have plate tectonics and we have this it's a necessary condition. It's really a necessary condition. Huh. And we have a living planet. I think it's, it's important to see this continuity between the, 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 the continuous movement of, of geology and the continuous movement of living cells and, and the processes are very similar. And, and my understanding is that in your model, um, so again, correct me where, where I go wrong, but you, you have this, um, so at least in my mind, this, the, these hydrothermal vents give you this, they, they simulate or they give you something that's somewhat analogous to this, uh, uh, this proton gradient that's already there. And then the, the cells uh, take advantage of this existing biochemistry, as it were, or the protocells, or mm. the, the, the potential things that become cells. Uh, and from deep within, you can imagine uh, uh, two of, you can imagine that both the bacteria and these archaea can actually uh, arise. Um, and what separates them, I think, uh, is they have rather different types of membranes. Yes, is that, is that, is I mean, there's, a, there's a paradox there that these two major domains of life, the bacteria and the archaea, they, they look the same. They've both been, uh, you know, they, they, they both arose four billion years ago. They have, both have, you know, effectively infinite population sizes over virtually infinite periods of time. Uh, and yet, in their morphology, they are very constrained. They remain tiny cells without much morphological complexity with fairly small genomes and so on. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes an interesting question, what, what constrains them? And we've touched on that already, that they're, they're effectively they're respiring across their membrane. 
um, and, and that's what provides the constraints and stops them from becoming larger and, and, and more sophisticated. Um, but we have this paradox about the origin and the, and the divergences of bacteria in the archaea. So that common ancestor, we think it was in these hydrothermal vents. And we're fairly sure that uh, all, all the bacteria in archaea are using proton gradients across membranes to drive their growth. Uh, so it's not just energy metabolism, it's carbon metabolism as well. Um, but the thing is that they have very different membranes. And so there's a, there's a paradox there about, well, what did the common what kind of a membrane did their common right. ancestor have? Was right. it this type and it got replaced here, or was it the other way around? Uh, or did they have something which was different? Um, and we've done some, some theoretical work, um, which again would be appealing to, to physicists, um, because it's basically calculating the proton flux <laughs> through membranes, across the membrane and through the proteins and so on, just to work out, is it, is it feasible that uh, natural proton gradients could drive these processes in living cells? Because it's not obvious that they can. What you would expect, if you've got a, if, let's say you have a, a, a membrane and you've got a, you've got a turbine in that membrane, like yeah. the ATP synthase, and you've got lots of protons on one side and relatively few on the other side, the protons will come cascading through until you've balanced the concentration or the charge across the membrane, and then it will stop. Yeah. Um, and this is what most bioenergeticists will say, that it'll never work because you, you're always going to get equilibrium in no time at all. Now, the thing in the vent is you've got this continuous flow. You, you, you've got alkaline fluid. So a proton comes in, but it could get neutralized by a hydroxide ion, or it could leave again. You've got this continuous flow taking things away. So then the question becomes really, well, what is the rate of flow? Under what conditions could it work, and when would it not work? And the long and short of all of that is, well, it, it can work very well so long as the membrane is really leaky to protons. So they can come cascading through these proteins, but also through the membrane. But because you've got effectively an infinite ocean of protons out there, when they've come in, you've still got more to replace them. Right. And you've got a continuous flow of hydrothermal fluids, which is continually taking them away as well. And so they're flushed out across this very leaky membrane, and it does work if you've got a leaky membrane. In other words, a membrane which is not like either the bacteria or the archaea, but a, an ancestor which is simpler and, and necessarily very leaky. And, so, and, and how does this membrane, what is the theoretical explanation for how it arises to, to begin with? I, I, there was something about, you know, lipid something yes. or other. Well, <laughs> it's actually very I easy. I mean, it's basically like a soap bubble. That's all it is. So uh, fatty acids are, are, are the, the lipids in our own membranes. Yeah. Um, and it's basically, you, you've, you've got at one end um, a, a couple of oxygen atoms with a charge on them, so it's a negative charge. Yeah. Then you've got a, 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 a chain of carbons all joined together. Um, and they are, they're called hydrophobic, they like oil, they, they don't like water very much. So you've got a, a, mo a molecule which at one end has got a charge and likes water, and at the other end has got a tail which doesn't like water. And they spontaneously form a bilayer. So the, the, the charged head group uh, interacts with water yeah. on both sides, and the tails interact with each other. So you've got a, a bilayer. Okay. And that forms, if you've got any way of making those fatty acids and concentrating them enough, uh, which is not as hard as it might sound, um, then they will spontaneously form structures that are basically cell-like in their structure. Okay. So you, you mentioned that uh, for this, uh, this common ancestor, um, I'm just going to pause yet another in what's seeming to be a long range of experiences. Uh, 
a dangerous neighborhood we live in. Would you like some more water? No, I'm good, thanks. So, so you mentioned um, that a necessary condition is for it to be leaky, uh, sufficiently leaky to, these are my words, clearly not yours, but to, to be able to, uh, to be able to metamorphosize itself over evolutionary time into uh, both a, a, a bacterial membrane and an archaic membrane. But how would you quantify those two membranes? How different are they? How similar are, are bacterial membranes within different bacteria? How much variation is there? And how much on the archaean side as well? Um, well, there's there's a fair amount of variation, and the structures are overall. Shall I stop? Yeah. yeah. It's the same one going the other way, isn't it? Yeah. yeah maybe they're just maybe they're going out for coffee or something. <laughs> So I was asking about the, the parameterizing the different membranes. Oh, yes. yes, okay. So the, the bacterial membranes and the archaeal membranes, they're very similar in their biophysical properties. So they're a similar thickness. Um, they have a similar conductance, for example. Um, uh, uh, but it's convergent evolution because they're different in their chemistry. Now, there are differences in the different bacteria and differences in the archaea and so on, but there are some aspects of it which seem to be conserved generally across the bacteria and differently across the archaea. And that's the composition, that's the chemical composition. So we have these fatty acids that I've already mentioned. Uh, bacteria have something different. They have um, kind of forked molecules called isoprenes that we make cholesterol from. Mm. Um, uh, but they, they use them in their membranes. Uh, but the, the, the really interesting difference between them is, is this head group. So uh, the, the charged group that interacts with water it's a simple three-carbon molecule called glycerol phosphate. Um, and the, 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 in the bacteria and the archaea have different handed versions of the glycerol phosphate. So they're not, you know, they're the same in their chemistry, but they're opposite stereochemistry. Oh, so, okay. So, so it's like the geometric the orientation. The right hand, yes, the geometric orientation is different, but they, chemically they're identical. Right. Uh, but the kind of reactions that they can do, uh, you know, all of our molecules are, 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 are handed one way or the other, all the amino acids are, all the, and effectively if you've got an, an enzyme, uh, it's got to take one hand or the other. It's right. got a particular shape and only one of the two handed forms will fit into it. And the problem with these membranes is they've got, the bacteria have one hand and the archaea have the other hand, and so all the enzymes required to make them are very different as well. Um, and there's no obvious reason in terms of natural selection, why one would be better than the other one. They're basically exactly the same. It's just an awful lot of new inventions you've got to do to switch from one to the other. Mm. So this is a, a deep paradox about this distinction in, in, in the lipids. And so far as we know, all archaea have got the left-handed version and all bacteria have got the right-handed version. Or the other way around, I can never remember those kind of details. But, um, one, one or the other. Is there is there an equal prevalence of the left-handed or right-handed enzymes around? Is there, there's no statistical imbalance between, or, or is it all? Uh, well, uh, all, the, all the archaea have the right-handed enzymes. And but all that's the, what I, yes, but I, yes. I just mean, uh, if you were to count up all the enzymes 
in the world or whatever. Well, that would then be a question about is there an imbalance between bacteria and archaea? Right. And the answer is yes, bacteria tend to be more common than, than archaea. Uh, but I don't think anybody would describe that to the difference in the stereochemistry of the head group. Okay. I mean, bacteria tend to be a bit more sophisticated somehow. They're a bit more inventive. They've come up with more different forms of chemistry, uh, metabolism. They grow a bit faster. That may be related to the membranes, possibly, because the, the, the bacterial membranes are a bit sloppier. Um, the, 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 the forked molecules, that the, the isoprenes, give them archaeal membranes a bit more rigidity. Um, and things can diffuse more quickly across a more uh, liquid membrane. So there may be differences there. Nobody really knows. The stuff we don't know is extraordinary. So I, I want to get to the uh, some of your experiments. You alluded to them earlier. So you, there's this wonderful theory of these alkaline hydrothermal vents, and and my understanding is you're saying, okay, well let's let's go ahead and and build something to actually test that. Um, so you have this thing that I've seen on one of your talks that was on YouTube, right? One of these guys. It wasn't was he about yay big? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's only this big actually. <laughs> oh, it's quite okay. small, yes. <laughs> um, and. So I'd, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about that, that you, you, you've had some results, you were able to, to move things to a level of getting formaldehyde or something like that, which didn't, you know, again, it's one of these chemistry things, it's yes. something else. Yeah. You're, you're getting closer, but you're, you're, you're not having quite the numbers that you wanted or, or what have you. So where, where are you with that, that whole experimental um, Well, we're trying various different avenues. That's one particular set of experiments, and probably that's the, 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 the main thrust I think, I mean, basically, yes, we have succeeded in making formaldehyde. That's not a big deal in one sense. It's a big deal in another sense. It's a big deal because, as I say, hydrogen and CO2 won't react with each other. Um, but if you can get them to react with each other, then they release energy in, rea in reacting. So there's, a, there's a, a barrier to their reaction. Right. But once you've overcome that barrier, then uh, they should react quite readily. And the, the thermodynamics says under these conditions, then you will make cells in effect under those conditions. There will be other barriers as well. But the main barrier, which is just stopping their reaction, you can put hydrogen and CO2 and mix them together in a flask and pressurize the whole thing and you know, put a match to it and nothing's going to happen. Um, but what the, what the cells that live in these vents do, which grow from this reaction, is they use the proton gradients across the membrane to drive that reaction. Um, and they're using, to do it, they're using iron sulfur proteins. So a lot of proteins, many proteins, have uh, an inorganic group right at the heart of it. And it's that that's really driving the reaction. So the protein's providing the context for it. And it, it's, it's kind of drawing in molecules and bringing them in contact in the right orientation with, with this ion cluster at the heart of it. Yeah. But the, 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 these are effectively mineral structures and, and we have them in, in vents and the expectation is they would have been in those early vents and the expectation is that um, they would drive, catalyze some of these early reactions. Now they do to a point but if you simply mix iron sulfur minerals with carbon dioxide and hydrogen nothing much happens either. Um, so the question we had really is, well, is, is, is it the proton gradient that makes the difference? Is it the structure, the barrier, the fact that you've got these iron sulfur minerals sitting in a barrier with fluids on one side of a particular acidity and on the other side of a different acidity, different compositions of those fluids, yeah. and the barrier acting as a semiconductor, which is, which is transferring electrons from one side to the other side. Um, so that's the setup that we've tried to emulate in the lab. 
And the biggest barrier to the reaction is the first couple of steps to get to formaldehyde. So what we're really looking for, it's not that we're particularly interested in formaldehyde, sure. but the question is, can we get to you want the to get top of that barrier? barrier? Can, yeah. We, yeah, can we show that we're clearing the barrier? Yeah. Oh, so uh, I don't pretend to know anything about this, uh, clearly. I don't, I don't even have to not pretend. It's, I think it's really yeah. transparent. Um, but I get the whole idea of can we cross an energy barrier. Um, I get the idea that once we cross the energy barrier, we can expect all sorts of other things to happen as a consequence of this. Um, but I can also imagine we're dealing, if we're trying to simulate or understand what happened on evolutionary timescales, there's the whole question of, the whole question of how long this stuff is going to take. Mm. And there's presumably a whole bunch of statistics that, uh, that one has to take into account. Um, and then there's the question of how much, well, it's really the same question, I suppose, how much you're able to produce. So if, if, if you're able to produce an, enough of whatever is required to go to the next level, um, somebody might come along and say, yes, that might work in principle, but you've only got a trace amount. You should have had much more. You should have had this percentage or that mm, percentage, mm. given the amount of time that's involved. Is that the sort of calculation or modeling that goes on, well, or is, no. is, is that not at all? Uh, not for me. Okay. Um, I, Christian de Duve, uh, who, who worked, who was a Nobel laureate who worked on the origin of life, but he made a very, I think, important point, which is that uh, life is about chemistry and chemistry happens quickly or it doesn't happen at all. Um, so I, either you, you, you know, if, if a reaction doesn't happen, something's going to take away the reactants right. or they're going to react with something else or whatever right. it may be. It's, you've got to have them right there and they're going to react now uh, or it's not going to happen. And so thinking in terms of millions or billions of years is not actually very helpful. Um, it might take millions or billions of years for evolution to happen, but most of, most of evolution is about stasis. It's not about change. And change can happen very, very quickly. Right. And so the fact that bacteria remain bacteria for 2 billion years or 4 billion years doesn't say that they're trying to change. It says that selection keeps them as they are. Uh, and then when they become... When, when you have a moment in time where the selection pressures change and, and, and complex cells arise, we don't know how long it took. The assumption is it takes millions and millions of years, but it could be you know, tens of thousands of years. We, we don't really have a feel for mm. time in biology. And that goes even more for the origin of life. So my feeling is that it had to happen, at least producing organics had to happen quickly and on a large scale. And any system which is doing that is getting you into the right ballpark. Because then the difficult parts come. The difficult parts are related to self-organization of matter. Now, for a, for a membrane that spontaneously forms a, a bilayer, that's quite easy. But if you start thinking about the origin of molecular machines, the protein-building factories called ribosomes, it's very hard to know how, how, do these, how do these appear in the first place. Is it, is it selection operating on what? Because we have no genes at that point, so selection on what? Um, or is it... Is it just spontaneous self-assembly? In which case, this is fairly weird physics that, <laughs> why this structure? And why does it happen to do that job rather than this structure? Uh, so, and the scale as well. You mentioned in your book, you give some yes. anecdotal notion of, I think there were 13 million ribosomes in one, in one cell. One cell. I yes. mean, that's just mind-boggling. It's, 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 and, well, and of course, they're, they're incredibly efficient in terms of how they produce these, these proteins and so yes. forth. But so I mean, there's 13 million inside one cell that you can't even see the cell. Um, uh, but at the same time, if you go down to the level of atoms, then these are massive molecular machines with 60 or 70 moving parts. Um, 
and, 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 and that do a, yes, they can make an entire protein in a minute or something like that. So they're extraordinary things. And, and these are the real problems for the origin of life that have barely been touched on or addressed yet. We have no idea how long that would take or how likely that is. Um, but one thing you can say for sure is any environment which is not providing the building blocks for all of that and focusing it and, and, and kind of charging it to go in a particular direction is, is, is never, you're never going to get there. Right. And yep. so these, this chemistry must happen quickly and must happen well. The fact that we can make it happen a little bit in the lab is an encouraging start. But we've got a reactor which is this big, an atmospheric pressure in a glass jar. Uh, we're talking about simulating reactions that should have been going on across the seafloor. Uh, in vents that the modern ones that we know about can be 60 meters tall at high pressures where hydrogen dissolves properly at high pressures um, and, and you don't know what the missing parts are you know these are geologically chemically complex systems all we can do is say well modern cells that live there use these iron sulfur minerals for example or they use magnesium to do this and and so we try to use those same things we try to reconfigure them from the same ingredients that cells make not what things that might work best but the things that cells use right so th that makes sense to me given your constraints but um and i don't know the differences in scale that arise when you have one of these things that's massive and the pressures and all the rest of this but one thing that did occur to me when i saw this little tabletop thing that you had is well why don't they have big biological experiments like they have big physics experiments? I mean, you, we you, can't agree with each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything I'm saying now is is um, it, it's a point of view which was pioneered by Mike Russell and, and Bill Martin. Um, you know, there's probably 20 of us in the world actively working on these kind of questions specifically to do with origins of life in alkaline hydrothermal vents. Uh, the majority of people working on origin of life are coming at it from very different places. Um, and who's to say we're right and they're wrong? I think they're right, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. Yeah, sure. But, um, but they think they're right and they may well be right. And, and science is, we're not at the stage yet where we can build a CERN or something where, where everyone agrees that this is the question and here's how to test it. Sure. Uh, but we, not, maybe not everyone, but I mean, 20 people for, for this approach. I'm sure you're right. I'm not arguing with you, but it's that seems odd to me. I can imagine there's a spectrum of different views and so sure. forth. Is it because uh, maybe this this is clearly just a sociological question? Is it because people just haven't been thinking this way? They've been trend, transfixed by DNA. Not that there's anything wrong with DNA, but that that, that uh, or, or that the chemists aren't thinking biologically or what have you. Why, why is it only twenty people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's precisely that the, the chemists don't think biologically. They think in terms of what chemistry is going to work. And they're not too worried about the next steps. They're not too worried about how does a ribosome self-assemble. They're interested in can we do the chemistry that will make the nucleotide building blocks. And that's enough for one person's lifetime sure. <laughs> in science. It's a difficult question. Um, and then there are, you know, the astrophysicists who are interested in cosmic chemistry and, and, and it's a fact that meteorites are often absolutely chock full of organic carbon and that was being delivered to the early Earth. There's no doubt about that. The question is, is it meaningful? Did it, did it deliver something that was needed for the origins of life or was it incidental? Uh, my guess is it was largely incidental, but, you know, why should people believe me beyond the power of an argument, but science is not about the power of argument, science is about the, the evidence base for the argument. So arguments are perceived as dangerous by, by people. I think too much. We do a, a PhD as a doctor of philosophy, 
Uh, I think there's not enough philosophy in science, actually, <laughs> these mm. days. I, I think one of the great things about having written books um, and thought about this broader picture is, is that I now have a very, I hope it's a, a, a solidly grounded, but I, I, I have a picture of how these things fit together across a large scale, and that means I've kind of narrowed down. The answer has to be here somewhere. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong in the details, but it, it has to be there somewhere. And I, I find that's, that's true of a, a lot of these questions, whereas people who are in a particular field and, don't, uh, and are not taking that broader synoptic view um, will tend to compare different ideas on their own merits. So you'll say, well, okay, this idea has these strengths and it has those weaknesses, this has these strengths and those weaknesses. To produce this specific result over here, as yes, opposed so to you, looking at You might compare them. So a review of, of uh, origin of life chemistry will cover hydrothermal vents and it will say, okay, so maybe there's something about the structure. Um, it's difficult. People have tried to make hydrogen react with CO2 and yes, you get trace amounts of this. Um, and, and, and so from a purely scientific point of view, you would say, well, it's an interesting idea. Um, it's experimentally tractable and some people are working on it, but there's been a lot more weight of evidence in this, this idea uh, and, and, and you know, an objective balanced overall review would tend to put less weight on hydrothermal vents than it would on other environments. Um, sure, but that's also because not nearly as much work has been done on, on yes, hydrothermal vents as well. Absolutely. You have a bit of a that's a large chicken part of the egg, And yeah. also because it's not easy for these reactions to happen because nobody's looked at the structure of cells and tried to work out, well, you know, can that drive things? And so the reason I think the answer lies there has got nothing to do with the quality of the science in the other fields. It's got everything to do with the, the philosophy that's coming from life itself and saying, well, these proton gradients across barriers are so fundamental to life, they must have arisen early, they really are, and, and they have to have happened in an inorganic context originally, and what could that inorganic context possibly be doing, to which there's only a very limited number of answers. So whether or not it works for me in the lab, you know, I'm, I'm confident that it will work. <laughs> that, 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 that having a broader view can funnel you down into right. a particular question. And even if the evidence for it at the moment is weak, which it is, um, I think 10 years down the line, the evidence for it will be strong. And if it's not, then I'll be out of a job. Well, but, but my, my understanding, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of, of the of the structure, just to hopefully re recapitulate what you were saying, is if you come at it from the idea that this, uh, that this uh, proton motive force is the, the most fundamental thing, or at least a very, very fundamental mm. thing, then you're naturally inclined to look at mechanisms that can, that can generate life that naturally has that yes. first and foremost. So if that's your philosophical picture, and your yes. philosophical picture doesn't just arrive randomly, you're looking around, you're saying, my goodness, all these cells have this as an essential aspect to them. So, Which is something we've only realized over the last couple of decades. And, uh, and the more cells that we discover living by very different means in very different environments turn out to do exactly the same mechanism. These extremophiles and so forth are, yes. are also doing For that. For example, they? exactly yeah. they are, yes. So the, 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 the strength of that argument has become enormously stronger over the last decade, um, that this is, how, this is a fundamental aspect of how cells work. Right. So it's, none of this is to gainsay the importance of DNA and information. No, of course not. Um, but it's just to say that it operates within a, within a context of a cell, and cells operate within a context of energy fluxes across a membrane. Right. Um, and 
there's no that that membrane and the proteins that do it now are so complex that most people simply put it to one side and say it cannot be early it cannot be ancient because it's too complex yeah. rather than saying okay so what are they actually doing and can we conceive of intermediate steps on the way to that happening um, and that's essentially what I've been doing and so the 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 the, the, the lay into the whole thing makes me feel quite confident that there has to be something in it. And, and so it's just a case of how do you get the funding to do the experiments? How do you physically set up the experiments? Um, yeah, those, are the, those are the kind of questions that I wrestle with on a daily sure, basis. Sure, But if I, if I were you, my thinking would be there has to be some mechanism that simulates or drives this proton motive force because that's my big principle that I'm working with. Mm. So hydrothermic vents, Hydrothermal, hydrothermal vents look yes. like a look like a, a great candidate for all sorts of reasons. It's conceivable that they're not, or that they're wrong, or mm, something like mm. that. In which case, it's something else. But and it has to be inorganic tautologically because we're talking about the origin of life. Yes. So we, we yeah. can't we yeah. can't have anything that's not inorganic to start with. Um, but it, it seems the logical framework is it has to be something that first and foremost gives rise to this, and 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 it, because because of my principle over here. Um, but I've, uh, I, I've taken us away from the second aspect, uh, which is the complexity of life in this endosymbiosis and, mm. and, and, and how that happens. So um, I want to get back to this founding principle because that's my yes. natural orientation. Well, it, it, does, it does stem, in fact, from, from these conditions at the origin of life. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that this is correct, that the reason that all cells use proton gradients across membranes is, is in the end to drive the reaction between carbon dioxide and hydrogen to make organics and to grow. So it's that fundamental. These vents um, are produced by a reaction between rock and water, and they're found on any wet rocky planet, and they're found on icy moons in the solar system, Enceladus and uh, Europa and places like that. Even Mars has these reactions going on. Mm. Um, so there would be billions of planets in the exoplanets in the Milky Way alone, wet rocky planets with these serpentinization reactions going on, producing hydrogen in large amounts. CO2, carbon dioxide, is, is uh, very common in atmospheres of planets in, in our solar system. Um, and so any you're going to have repeated on billions of occasions these conditions where you have hydrothermal systems rich in hydrogen and atmospheric conditions rich in CO2, giving you mildly acidic oceans very often, and the barrier to them reacting is lowered by the structure of the system, that you've got different pH across this barrier. And so if these ideas are correct, then it explains immediately why bacteria and archaea independently have these same properties, that they're using the membrane, they're using the, the, the uh, to, to react hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make organic molecules. Yeah. And this is what, you know, even plants, these plants outside, they're reacting hydrogen with carbon dioxide. It doesn't look like it because what they're doing is stripping the hydrogen from water. They're using the energy of the sun to split water, grab the hydrogen and do what these cells always did. The waste is the oxygen which gets washed out into yeah. the atmosphere. So this is, a, again, a fundamental principle of what life is doing. It's using carbon dioxide and attaching hydrogen onto it. And it's getting that hydrogen from wherever it can now, but in the beginning it was just bubbling out of the ground. So these constraints then, this, you have a cells which are basically growing as a result of proton gradients across membranes. And these same constraints ought to apply to life anywhere else. It's imaginable that life could operate in a different way, but because these conditions are so common, 
uh, ubiquitous. Um, it's likely that you would have similar constraints on life arising on other planets for similar reasons. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to get stuck because the problem with having, uh, the problem with respiring across the, the, the membrane is you run into, well, you run into two sets of constraints. One of them is just the surface area. If you're breathing across your skin, then the amount of energy you can get depends on the surface area of the skin. Whereas the amount of proteins you need to make to be a, an active working cell depends on the volume. And as you become a larger, larger cell, then your, your surface area falls in relation to the volume. And so there are constraints there. So why can't you internalize it and get out of those constraints as we do with our mitochondria? Well, the answer there seems to be that um, what you have are membranes with a charge across the membrane. The proton gradient is a charge. And it's a very strong charge if you get down to the level of, um, of the membrane itself. It's about 30 million volts per meter is the field strength that you would experience if you were the size of a molecule down there, which is equivalent to a bolt of lightning. So all of our cells, the mitochondria inside of those cells, the membranes have a charge across them equivalent to a bolt of lightning, and that's what's really keeping us alive. And it's, it's gone back. <laughs> generation after generation, right back to the very origins of life. It's a thrilling thought, really, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so how do you keep a charge with that intensity from doing damage? Well, the answer seems to be um, by responding in a kind of thermostat-type way to any changes in the intensity of the charge or the conditions that generate the charge or dissipate the charge. And we have to react within minutes, usually. Um, so if you know, put a plastic bag over your head, you're going to be dead within a couple of minutes. Um, if you had a partial plastic bag over your head, maybe you'll survive. But if you survive, it's because you're adapting to the changing conditions. Right. And again, you better do it quickly. So all diving mammals and so on adapt very, very quickly to, to being uh, having oxygen cut off. Um, and it seems to take genes right on site. It's as if you, there's a requirement for uh, a local kind of management center, <laughs> almost, um, to, to organize on the ground. You could see it in military terms that it's a local commander on the ground responding to changes yeah. in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in the immediate circumstances. Um, and this seems to be the real problem. So we have inside ourselves these mitochondria. They started out as bacteria. They had whole genomes, bacterial-sized genomes of probably four or 5,000 genes. And they got whittled away over two billion years and, and down to um, just a handful of genes left. But we all have that same handful of genes left. We do, these plants do, uh, fungi do. Basically, all complex life has got two genomes, not one genome. It's got the massive nuclear genome, which, which, which codes for all the complexity. But that massive genome is supported by these tiny genomes in the mitochondria. And if you were to strip those genomes out, then effectively the cell would lose control over its own energy and be unable to maintain its own nucleus. And so you, you cannot have... This is a hypothesis. You cannot have complex life with massive genomes unless it's supported by these tiny paired back bioenergetic genomes. So at one point, if I understand this correctly, at one point you had this bacteria that was, that was swallowed, as it were, by this archaean cell, and, and the genome in the bacteria, uh, or the, the bacteria itself, or whatever, became this mitochondria eventually. Yeah. Uh, and then the uh, uh, and then these other structures started developing in this in this new complex cell, this eukaryotic eukaryotic. Eukaryotic. Thank yes. you. 
as you you carry out Excel. Um, but uh, so the, I can see their energy uh, considerations and 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 all the rest. But I guess one question would be, well, I how often did this happen? Because my sense is this only happened, uh, according to the theoretical arguments, this only happened once. Uh, and that seems, and it happened yes, like two, so and this, half, two and a half billion years in, it happened at some point, yeah. you, you have these things, and then you, you have this complexity that arises in, in one shot. And I can sort of see, not really, but I'm willing to wave my hands or let you wave your hands or whatever, and see that all sorts of other interesting things happen after that point. But the question is, how did that happen? And maybe more interestingly, why isn't it happening all over the place? Why did it only happen well, once? Well, I mean, I, I think we need to um, take a step back and think, what are we trying to explain yeah. here? Because the, most people's immediate perception is, is exactly that, that, that it happened once, it's outrageous, that it cannot possibly be true, it's too much of a freak, a fluke. I didn't um, say it couldn't be true. Yes, I, but I just, I mean, I just I think, said it's I curious. I think as human beings, we back away from, 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 from that proposition. Yeah. Um, and I think it means that we tend not to look at the evidence in an open-handed way. So the evidence, what do we have? Uh, and, and I have to say that it's, it's weak. Um, but what, what do we have? Well, we, what we see is that all that we are very closely related to that plant outside the window, at the level of our cells, at the level of our genes, in, in thousands upon thousands of ways. We undoubtedly share a common ancestor. And by definition, that common ancestor can only have arisen once. So the first thing is, well, what, what do we look around? We look at, at all this complex life around the world, and we find that it all shares that same cell structure, which is odd. Because what I would expect from first principles would be that this plant would have arisen from photosynthetic bacteria, and I would have arisen from some kind of bacterium that went around eating things. Uh, and and uh, fungi would have arisen from another type of bacteria that went around dissolving uh, right. the, the matrix that it lived in. Um, but that's not what happened. We all go back to a single common ancestor, and as I say, by definition, it arose once. And we, it's very, very difficult to track what happened before that ancestor. So it already had an enormous complexity. And the only other things we know about in the world are things with, with trivial complexity in comparison, the bacteria and the archaea. So there's a black hole. Yeah. Regardless of whether any of these ideas are right or not, we have no idea, really, we have ideas, but we have no proof of what the trajectory was from these bacteria to this enormously complex eukaryotic host. And all of this machinery in our own cells, which goes wrong in medical, you know, in, in, in illnesses, we don't really know how any of it evolved or why it has the relationship to other parts of the machinery that it actually does. So I think, again, regardless of whether or not any of the ideas in this book are right, the problem is a real problem. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy to think that because we can fill textbooks and you know, libraries of papers with lots and lots of information about eukaryotic cells that we somehow know how they work. We really don't. But, but, but just, so I, I'm not trying to be, yeah. uh, so I, have, I, I have no problem being combative, yeah. but I can't, yeah. I'm not going to be combative because yeah. I don't know anything. So no, I want to, <laughs> I, I, let me come back to this question though of, um, of, of unique origin, singular origin. Yeah. So, so we share all of this complexity with these other things, and nothing, bacteria don't and archaea don't. And we've spent a lot of time looking in all kinds of environments. It wouldn't be very surprising to find another type of cell. In fact, on one occasion, perhaps we have, which is not like either the eukaryotic cell or either of the two known prokaryotic groups. But we've spent an awful lot of time looking, and we've really not found anything that we can agree about. 
Isn't this um, a weird thing that these Tokyo so that's, guys found or something like that? Sorry? Isn't it this weird thing that these Tokyo these, these yes, Japanese guys found? Yes, there's one weird thing in the sea off the coast of Japan. Yeah. Uh, and all we've got is one section <laughs> of that cell, which killed the cell, of course. So we don't have any genome. We don't know what it is. I finished the book with a discussion of that and what it might mean. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really take away from this problem that all complex life that we know about shares this common ancestor, which by definition arose once. It arose, we think, about two billion years ago. So the first thing you say, okay, so let's scrutinize the fossil record before that. Is there any evidence at all that there was you know, other origins of complex right. life? Um, now, there's plenty of bacteria in that fossil record, but there's no sign of more complex cells. Now, it may just be that they didn't fossilize very well, but we do see them later on. From about a billion years ago, we see unequivocal eukaryotic cells. We see fungi, we see red algae. We can even identify what they are. So some of these groups do fossilize just fine. It's just that we don't see them for the first two, two and a half billion years of Earth's history. Then we do start seeing some things and we're not sure what they are. They're probably eukaryotic. We don't know. It's possible that there were multiple origins at that time of complex cells that disappeared, a lot of them. We don't really know. So there's an uncertainty there. And then ever since then, um, the, the, the assumption is, well, now you have these complex eukaryotic cells that have taken over the whole world and they're going to eat everything else. And so any bacteria that's kind of striving to be a little bit bigger and a little bit more complex, it's just going to be eaten before it ever has a chance to, mm. to get very far. That again, is a, it's, a, it's a bit of a limp assumption. It might be true. Uh, but we do know of, of thousands of different cells which are a kind of intermediate level of complexity and they do just fine. Um, but they've all evolved down to that level. They've all become simpler from, from more complex ancestors, eukaryotic ancestors, rather than evolving up to that niche from simpler bacterial ones. So I think what I would say is it's a bit of a complacent assumption that it must have happened uh, thousands or millions of times. Because there's, no, there's not a jot of evidence for it. Sure. Um, all I'm trying to explain really is, is what the evidence says at face value, which is that it happened once. Now, I think that's, that's an extreme view. I, I will be shocked if it happened once. It probably happened thousands of times, millions of times. Who knows? The thing is, it only survived once um, and, and only took over the world on one occasion. So... Why? Well, I think the, it's, it's we're back to the, why is life the way it is as a question. All these cells have these particular traits, and those traits, the argument is, arise because selection has switched from being about the outside world to being about the inside world. Uh, and how do you survive with your, um, with your bacteria population living inside you? And so there's two aspects to this. One of them is, is that it's really not easy for, for, for a bacterium to get inside another bacterium. We know of some examples, so we know it's possible, but it's rare. And so this is part one of a bottleneck, if you like, that yeah. it's, it doesn't happen much. Um, and part two of the bottleneck is once it's happened, you end up with, um, I suppose, an extremely unstable cell, which is likely to go wrong and likely to die. And trying to reconcile these relationships between the cell and all these, this population of bacteria living inside the argument of the book is that that's why we end up with sex. That's why we end up with two sexes. It's why we have all of these traits, why we age and die and so on, that they can all be traced back to that relationship, which is, you know, even assuming that you've had on millions of occasions cells getting inside other cells, the chances are it goes wrong and, and doesn't work out. 
So, you know, maybe there have been several other origins of complex life on Earth that just never really got a footing. I, I, I hesitate to say that it's, it's as rare as it appears to be. But what I would say with some conviction is that um, just having a population of bacteria on a planet is no guarantee that you're going to end up with complex life. There's, there's, a, there's a point at which the, the mode of evolution shifts and it seems to require an endosymbiosis, so mm -hmm. one cell getting inside another one, for reasons that I think relate to energy, for reasons that go back to the very origin of life, and which would be similar on other planets, um, and which give rise on relatively rare occasions, it seems to be relatively difficult, maybe it happens you know, often, but just not as often as, as other types of bacteria are appearing. Um, and, and that that in itself constrains the properties that complex life is going to have. So this is the overall thrust of the argument. And, you know, it may be that it all falls down tomorrow because a single discovery could overturn a lot of this. Yeah, sure. But um, it seems to me um, that there are different ways of looking at it happens. So, again, I don't know anything about this. But I hear, okay, there's this process of endosymbiosis. And so one... One bacteria somehow gets gets eaten or gets inside mm. this this other type well, of thing. It's not eaten; it gets right. inside. Right. Somehow, gets inside. Right. It wasn't eaten. Right. right. Sorry, it's not eaten. Yes. It turns into mitochondria and blah yeah. blah blah. So it gets there's this process, um, and I can imagine again without knowing um, that there are all sorts of ways that that can go wrong or unsuccessful or uh, it, it can pick uh, all sorts of inappropriate avenues that wind up being unstable and, and, and so forth and so on. Um, it seems to me this is something which could and should be able to be quantified mathematically, that you can have models based upon potentials of this happening and potentials of that happening. And, and if you, I mean, a lot of this stuff in the beginning would be thrown in by hand, of course, because you're creating a model and so forth. But you could imagine that you run all sorts of models based upon these constraints and come up with a likelihood of self-sustaining, um, you know, going great guns, eukaryotic cells happening once every three billion years or something like that, given the populations, given the you interchanges, could, given... You could certainly model all of that, yes. Um, I think you would have to have a lot of doubts about all the parameters that you chose yeah, of course. for the model. But just to so start how, with, until you... it would be worth anything, I don't know. Um, mm. But it would be an interesting thing to try to do. And I think one of the, the best things about modeling is, is not so much that it necessarily gives you an answer that you can believe, so much as it makes you think about the question in a far more rigorous way and what the parts are and how they interact with each other. Right. Um, and, and so we, we've done actually quite a lot of modeling about questions uh, such as the origin of two sexes. Why is it that uh, one sex passes on the mitochondria and the other one doesn't? And we've had some, you know, to me, revelations um, which, which come from mathematical modeling of these questions, from, from thinking in rigorous terms. Okay, so you have a, you've got this population of cells, they're mutating. We know they mutate. How fast do they mutate? What happens if you have a mutation rate of X? Um, how does the host cell cope with that? Um, and, and, and some very simple answers come out from that in the end. And effectively, it's all about um, how do you keep those mitochondria under control so that they're doing a job for you rather than doing their own thing? How do you select for their function so that they are continually being helpful? And the answer is, well, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to split them up. 
you, you, if you're as a cell and you're dividing into daughter cells, what you've got to make sure is that some of the daughter cells, they all get different selections of mitochondria. These ones might be good for you. These ones might be bad for you. There may be a mixture in the middle. But what you're doing is you're apportioning them out into, into cells that can then compete between themselves as cells. These guys have got the good mitochondria. These guys have got the bad ones. So these guys are going to win that battle. And, and that's a way then of selecting at the level of mitochondria that the, the, the population inside you um, has got the good mitochondria. And the only way you can do that, given that you're constantly throwing up new mutations, new, new uh, kind of bad mitochondria, is to, is to sample in one way or another. So you're constantly passing out and allocating different types of mitochondria. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what's happening with two sexes. Only one sex is passing on the mitochondria. It's a form of sampling. And they're doing it, um, again, in, in, in oocytes, in the female germline, they're passing them out through a, a series of randomizing processes that mean that all the different oocytes are getting slightly different populations of mitochondria. Some of them will work well, some of them won't work well. The ones that don't work well, you can kill them off. The ones that do work well, they'll go on to seed the next generation. And so you have insights, and this is all coming really from, from, from the mathematical modeling of a very simple process of generating variation by segregation, by, 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 by doubling and apportioning out randomly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think these are valuable insights, and they're coming from the modeling. But to try and put a number on how long is that going to take um, is very difficult, because we don't have enough insight into what the real parameter values actually are. Sure. I'd like to get to back to this idea of a principle, um, and the principle of proton gradients across membranes, just putting it there. Um, so again, perhaps I'm just an easily influenced individual, but it seems like a remarkable idea, at least it struck me as remarkable, that just about everything, every life, life form at the cellular level that we see around us works that way. Mm. And it doesn't just work that way in terms of, um, you know, we could opt for nuclear power, we could opt for coal power or whatever. It works that way in a way which I think one could certainly say is integral to the entire uh, apparatus, the entire life of, of mm. um, That's very suggestive to me of something of a principle of uh, something that's not a coincidence. Um, of course, I don't pretend to know, and it's logically mm. possible that it is a coincidence, but yes. it's certainly suggestive of something. If you see the I same thing in different guys agree. all over the yes. place, you think, why is it that way? Um, so my first question is, is that, some, is that idea, however inchoate it is, how, however difficult it is to explicitly corroborate through all sorts of different modeling and so forth, but is that basic idea, that awareness of the importance and the, the seeming universality of these, uh, this proton gradient membrane energy mechanism for life, is that gaining broader currency or wider currency? Is that gaining wider currency amongst biologists? Or is this something that people just don't come to terms with at all or just, just ignore? Um, I would say yes, it is gaining wider currency, um, but I think it's had a trivial effect on the overall direction of, let's say, medical research. Um, I think for understandable reasons, um, but 
which is to say we, we have tremendous processing power now and sure. reading genes and reading variations in genes has got us a tremendous way and a lot of the the biology that i talk about in here has come from genetics and has come from of, reading genomes of course maybe i so, didn't ask the right question so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting no, but, that someone who's a cancer uh, yes, researcher just just drop is, everything and start do, and start doing this kind of well stuff. actually a lot of cancer researchers are thinking in terms of metabolism now and the field has has gone over the last 10 or 15 years or so away from the idea that it's, it's just mutations in genes, that it's oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes and so on. And it's, people are thinking far more openly in terms of uh, epigenetic changes, in terms of genomic stability, mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, what's known as the Warburg shift, but cells will switch their metabolism away from respiring oxygen, uh, which they still do to some extent, but then they're, they, they're, becoming, they're relying on fermentation processes instead. Um, so I, I think these ideas are, are more mainstream than they were, and a lot of what I've written about is not specific to, 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 sure. to cancer in, in, in any particular way. The point I'm making is that um, we, have, we have this tremendous um, ability to read the genomes of cells, even single cancer cells, uh, but I, I think the field is drifting away from that power to do that, to trying to work out, okay, so why? Why are the genes being expressed in this particular way? And there's, there's now an understanding that underpinning it is something about the metabolic status of the cell. And that metabolic status of the cell, some people have pinned to the mitochondria, others probably are doubtful about that. And again, from my point of view, I, I have this broad synoptic vision that the origin of the eukaryotic cell was about the relationship between two cell types. One of them was the mitochondria, one of them was the host cell. And then all this eukaryotic complexity arose in that context. And so the mitochondria almost necessarily are right at the heart of all of that. Now, medical research over the last couple of decades has found in, repeatedly, as I was finding back in, in the days when I was working for the Medical Education Agency, free radical biochemistry is central to these things. A lot of the free radical biochemistry is coming from the mitochondria. And actually, at a broader level, it's the mitochondria that are central to everything. Um, and, and this has been found repeatedly in one disease after another that mitochondrial are potentially important. Um, now, a balanced medical researcher is going to say, okay, well, yes, they're one part of a cell, plainly they're important. Um, they're important for apoptosis, this controlled cell death, they're important for providing ATP, they're important for other things too. But no, let's not lose our bearings here, there are other cell structures too, and mm. most genes are in the nucleus. And, the endoplasmic reticulum, this system of membranes is very important. You know, a balanced, reasonable view will, will, will not try to overemphasize the importance of mitochondria. Sure. But this evolutionary view, which says that mitochondria are right at the center of, every, of cell physiology and everything that a cell does, brushes all the rest of it aside somewhat and says, no, the answer really does lie here. And the reason that mitochondria keep cropping up is not because they're just part of a cell, is because they're absolutely central to everything a cell is doing. Right. Now, I don't think that attitude is really carried across yet, but maybe it will. But uh, again, looking at it um, from principles perspective, and you, you, you quote Erwin Schrodinger in some of your talks in this whole, his, his question of what is life and his, mm. his book, in fact, and his approach, and, and looking at trying to understand what is a necessary aspect of everything we call life. I'm not suggesting that a medical researcher or, or, mm. or a vet or somebody like that should drop everything, what they're doing. But asking these 
it seems to me this is very suggestive of a big picture approach to the biological sciences. And I'm wondering what somebody who disagrees with you would say uh, on that level, not other things are important, or yes. other, uh, we, have to, we have to pay attention to DNA and, and, and I don't have time to pay attention to mitochondria or energy aspects right now and so forth. That's all fine and well and good and I completely understand that uh, insofar as I understand it. Um, but again, I'm looking at this notion of, look, we have to, it, there's something interesting going on when one looks at everything that we call life, which is suggestive of the fact, um, and there are of course many more details, um, but it's suggestive of the fact that if we are investigating life in another galaxy or in another place, um, we believe that many, if not all, of these features will necessarily be replicated in some form or, or another, some instantiation or another, but mm. the, the basic core ideas will, will have to be there. That's an interesting, captivating claim, and I would wonder what somebody who would disagree with that would say, no, it's just a coincidence yes, or, or, yes. or what? Um, I think there, there, there are fields where people really would disagree with me. So, for example, the origin of the eukaryotic cell, was it an abrupt shift in selective forces operating on it, or was it a gradual accumulation of complexity? Um, and, and they would have uh, you know, quite strong arguments against my position. Same for the origin of life. Um, now, for this area of medical research, I don't think that there is a strong argument against it, so much as it's just ignored as not being terribly relevant. Mm. Um, because the, the, the assumption is that it really it's all about DNA and it's all about sequence changes. Uh, now, as I say, that's beginning to shift, but it's, it's not really considering it from the point of view of there's a necessary interplay between energy and genes and structure. Uh, and that cell physiology uh, depends on that interplay of, 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 of energy flow. Yeah. through a cell at any time. And, and the state, the epigenetic state of genes, whether they're switched on or silenced, um, again, depends on that energy flow. Now, I don't think I'm saying things here which, which many people would disagree with as no. such. It's, it's, hard it's, to it's just not a focus. It's, it's just not the way that people really approach the problem. And the, the, no, the, the, what I've tried to do on various occasions is try and think, okay, well, if what I'm saying, if I try and think through logical steps, does it point in a different direction to the direction that medical research is currently taking? I, I, I can't say that it really does. I can't say that the people who are studying cancer from a metabolism point of view and looking at gen genomic instability are, are, are doing anything other than what I would recommend they do. Sure. Um, but I think there's whole areas of, of medical research, for example, um, we know about hereditary diseases and lots of diseases have a heritability um, and that may be let's say 50% I, I'm, I'm making up some numbers here let's say for schizophrenia or epilepsy or something there's a heritability of 50% which means that if identical twins um, genetically identical twins um, one of the twins has it there's about a 50% chance that the other twin would have it so obviously, a lot of it is just nothing to do with genes and heredity. But the 50% that is to do, apparently, with genes and heredity, um, so what is it exactly? So the way that people tend to go about these questions is by looking uh, what are known as genome-wide association studies. So you look across the entire genome, and you, you look for people who've got a genetic variant of a particular gene, and you say, oh, look, 
he's got this and this guy's got that and both of them have got epilepsy or schizophrenia or something. So there's an association here between this variant of this particular gene. Now, most genes are not, most diseases have nothing to do with a single gene. We know that lots of genes play a role. And so you, you look for all these SNPs, they're called, so, um, and, and you, 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 you add up, effectively, the amount of heredity uh, that, that these SNPs can account for. Yeah. And typically it might add up to 2 or 3%. And so there's a, the thing known as the, the missing heredity, which is the, the other 30 or 40%, which is not explained by these genome-wide association studies. Now, the, the thing that frustrates me is that very often people will say, OK, well, we don't have enough resolution. There weren't enough patients in this study. And if we have a bigger study, let's say 10 times as big, then we're going to pick up on a whole lot more associations that were, just didn't show up in this one. But logically, that still can't account for more than a few percent of the total association. So other things could. Other things could be herit her heritable. So, for example, environment is heritable to a degree. You know, you know, we have a microbiome, which is different from what people in Japan have. It's to do with a European diet and so on. And, it, and, and, and that is heritable in some sense through the conditions in which we live. And that could theoretically account for a large part of it. But we also have mitochondrial genes and their interaction with the nuclear background. Um, and that also could arguably account for that missing heredity. Yeah. Um, the frustrating thing is people very rarely look. They tend to put aside the mitochondrial genes as being trivial and unimportant housekeeping genes that there's only you know, 38 of them against 20,000 in the nucleus, therefore they cannot possibly be important. And so they put it aside and don't look. And I find that a frustration because it's not so much that there's an argument against it, so much as there's just an ignorance or an un, an, a lack of interest in the possibility that, the logical possibility that something other than the, the gene sequence in the nucleus accounts for a large proportion of the missing genetic heritability of diseases and therefore could give insights into it. And presumably that's um, based upon an understanding of function rather than just numbers and statistics, as you were saying. If you just, if you look at things and say, well, there are only 38 of these compared to whatever zillion yes. of them there are over yes. here, um, then it becomes trivial statistically. But if you look at it functionally and say, what do these things actually do? And, and Why and are they there at all? Right. <laughs> Um, so these are, in a sense, more philosophical questions about why is the cell the way it is, why is life the way it is, but it guides you to thinking that the interaction between these genes in the mitochondria and the genes in the nucleus has to be central to the existence of cells at all, and therefore if it starts going wrong, for whatever reason it is, then there will be consequences, and those consequences will be diseases. They will be the things that go wrong in our own lives. Um, and, and so again, this, this broad synoptic view channels down and says the, the answer to the problem is here somewhere. Maybe the details of what I suggest are just all wrong, but the answer has to lie there somewhere. It has to be important. Yeah. Um, since we've become philosophical, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to try to up the ante, as it were, and conclude with uh, a question that I, I, I certainly like to ask people of a scientific disposition, which is if I were God and I could answer... Um, any question, or let's say three questions that you might have, um, what would you ask me? Uh, well, I think the first one would be about the origin of life. Was it really <laughs> this way in these events for these reasons? Um, the second one would be, I suppose, about eukaryotes and complexity. Was it really about energy? Was it really about the requirement for cells interacting? I mean, the, uh, these ideas, are, there's, a lot of, there's a lot in them. 
but they may be completely wrong. It may be a figment of my imagination. Um, science has a knack of of uh, leading you up a garden path, and it turns out that a lot of things that you became attached to and cherished are actually just wrong. So I would like to know the answer to those. And the third one, um, I think, is perhaps a more rounded human question, is about the origin of consciousness. Um, so I, I wrote a, a, an earlier book called Life Ascending, and there's a chapter in there on consciousness. And it's not a subject that I uh, am an expert in at all, but it was a subject that really had to be in that book. And I've had more abusive emails from people about that chapter oh, than really? anything else. I mean, not terribly abusive, but saying, you know, why, why, are you, why are you addressing a subject you're obviously not an expert in? Um, you also wrote and, a paper once uh, yes, and, con I, yes, and, and yes. concluded with words to the effect of consciousness is too important or quantum consciousness, or the, the quantum effects is too important to be left up to the speculations of physicists. So I was wondering <laughs> if, you got, if you got any nasty uh, responses right. from that as well. <laughs> Not really, actually. The physicists quite engaged with that. I mean, I, I, I had emails from Stuart Kaufman uh, and, and uh, Stuart Hameroff um, and, and people like Roger Penrose in response to, 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 to that paper. Um, Sorry, and I, you know, I would stand by what I said there. So I'm not an expert on it, but I, I think that um, biochemistry as a discipline has avoided the problem. And the problem is a very simple one to me, uh, which is that uh, you know, we know how neurons operate. They operate by <laughs> high gradients across membranes, funnily enough. Same mechanism. Um, and, and they depolarize. Membranes will, will open up pores in them, and sodium ions or potassium ions will go rushing through, will depolarize the membrane. And somehow that gives rise to feelings. Somehow the fact that this membrane just, just changed its physical state means that I experience love or I experience pain or hate or um, just bellyache. Um, I do believe that it's in the biochemistry. I do believe that there's something in there to explain. I don't really I don't want to resort to the idea that, 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 that it's a mysterious thing and God did it. Perhaps he did. I, I don't know. Um, but I'd like to think that a scientific explanation will be grounded in the chemistry that we know about. But then I'm, I'm left thinking at the end of all of this, and I read a lot. I read a lot of books. I, I thought a lot about it, and I, I, came to, I, I, did not, I, look, I was looking for an answer that someone else would have to that simple question, how does depolarization of a neuron give rise to a thought or a feeling of anything at all? And I don't think anyone's ever answered that question. And there's two, I can only think of two ways into answering the question. One of them is from fundamental physics. We're coming back to the Roger Penrose view of things that there really is a, a missing property of matter that we don't know anything about um, and that if we can understand that then we will get an insight into what consciousness is. And I find it hard to believe, I find it hard to swallow. I find it hard to swallow that there's a fundamental property of matter which relates to the, the grim reality of life, pain or you know, stomach ache or whatever it might be. And it doesn't seem to correspond to the anatomy of the brain to me either. Now, maybe it does. I'm not, I don't have that as a strong view. The alternative, though, is that it is all about the structure of the brain. And that it's nothing to do with the fundamental property of matter and that somehow depolarization of neurons is able to give rise to a feeling and that we can find out what that is. But in effect, it's selection has been operating. Selection has basically fooled us, tricked us. And, it, and it's given rise, it's, it's, it's made us think that these feelings are real when in fact they're not. They're just properties of nervous Stop. system operating. Yeah. 
It's an emergent property of a nervous system. That's, those are words that mean almost nothing to me, but that's the context in which it's seen. So I have no idea about consciousness. I think this is probably the origin of life. I can see a way through the problems. I, 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 can, I have some difficulty with self-organization of matter, but basically I can see a path through the whole problem that may or may not be right, but it's not beyond the wits of man to solve that problem. It's not beyond my wits to solve that problem. Consciousness, I think, I see as very different. It's, uh, it's beyond my wits to solve it, and I, I, so far from what I read, it's beyond the wits of man at the moment as well. And that's a thrilling problem for a rising generation of scientists to get their teeth into. Indeed. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we've provided or haven't covered sufficiently? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. I can much. talk all day, but, uh, but yes, I, I don't have any... I think finishing on consciousness is good because that's... Uh, it's a problem I have no personal investment in, really, but it's a problem that I think is one of the great scientific problems that we still have not got close to solving. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Biology, along with separate discussions with Jake Argus, Alcino Silva, Stephen Shearer, and Matthew Walker. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.